Well, we want to give some time to the theme of um, praying as followers of Christ. And so we may not have thought of that before. I think that we would all agree if we have, you know, um, some acquaintance with the Bible for some time, that the Gospels in particular so frequently talk about Christ praying or giving us teachings from Christ on prayer that it is hard for a Christian to think of the life of Jesus without connecting it to a life of prayer. And when we think of that, that, that's pretty straightforward and simple, but then we run into a couple of hurdles immediately. And one hurdle is the question of, are you following Jesus in the area of prayer? Does does that is, is that even something he requires? Does that cross your mind as something that is just fundamental for the Christian life? It's not just that we say our prayers, but that we follow Jesus Christ. In order to pray like a Christian, there are a lot of ingredients that come together. So, you know, how or what foundation we walk across as we come to the living God. Obviously not our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. This trail that he has blazed into the Holy of Holies. And then on the throne in that holy place commands us to come. All the promises, all the reasonings, all the parables, all the commands and the warnings connected with prayer. I mean, we don't lack anything. So we would agree Christians should pray. But have you ever considered that you cannot really pray as a Christian if you are not, in some sense, imitating Jesus Christ? Morality is not Christian obedience. Christian obedience includes morality, but but, but there's a person that is at the heart of what we're doing. And there is a person who has become our pattern. And the same thing with prayer. Just because we would claim to be Christian and we might quote from the Bible when we say our prayers every day as individuals or when we come together on Sunday, it doesn't necessarily mean we are particularly Christian or Christ-like. To pray like a Christian means that you are in some measure imitating Christ in the way you pray, as well as applying the teachings of Christ when you pray. And so that obviously for most of us brings a fairly big kind of hurdle in the path. Is it possible for you? uh, You don't have to think about anyone else. Is it possible for you to pray the way Christ prayed? How would you know how to pray the way Christ prayed? Where would you get that information? And you know, does it have to be perfect before you say, I, I am praying and in my prayers, I am imitating Jesus Christ. Obviously, we're not talking about sinlessness. So what do we mean when we talk about praying as Christ prayed? Well, for that, we want to just revisit for a few weeks the theme of the, the example of Jesus in this area of prayer. Tonight, we're going to look at why, and next week and following, 
more about how. All right. If you read through the Gospels, you can make your own list of all that Jesus did with regard to prayer, personally, his own example, and then his teaching. But the book of Luke that we read from just now actually is the gospel that gives us the most information, specific examples of Jesus's prayer. He mentions Christ praying more than any of the other gospels and the teachings of Christ on prayer. I'll give you a quick sample. Only Luke tells us that after Jesus's baptism, it was while he prayed, all right, coming up from baptism, he prays and the spirit descends. Luke chapter 5. Luke is the only one that tells us after cleansing the leper, he prays. Luke in chapter 6 tells us, and he's the only one that tells us, that before he chose the 12 men who would be his disciples, he spent the entire night in prayer. In Luke chapter 9, Luke tells us that Peter's great confession, you know, you are the Christ, the Son of God. That occurred when the disciples walked up to Jesus and found him praying. And when he stopped and turned to them and asked him the question, Peter made that comment. Luke tells us that it was while Jesus prayed with um, the inner three disciples, Peter, James, and John, on the mountain that we call the Mount of Transfiguration, it was while Christ prayed that there was that miraculous transforming, transfiguring of Christ. It's as if, you know, the, the veil of humanity is, you know, becomes thin and the reality of his glory just shines through all of him. And it's so blindingly bright that the men fall on their face. And in Luke chapter 11, which we just read, he's the only one that mentions that it was while Jesus was praying and the disciples walk up to him, see him praying, hear him praying, that one of them says, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? John the Baptist taught his followers how to pray. So there's pretty, it's not difficult for us to go through the scriptures and locate these examples in the New Testament. It's not difficult to locate even in the Old Testament passages which prophesy the coming of Jesus, like Isaiah 49, where we are allowed to listen in on a conversation between the son and his father 600 years before his birth. Uh, or in the Messianic Psalms, like Psalm 2 or Psalm 100, uh, Psalm 22, where on the cross you are allowed to listen to the prayers of Christ as he cries out to the Father. The fact that Christ prayed is pretty straightforward. Here's another hurdle. One hurdle I mentioned was, can we actually imitate him? The second hurdle is this. Why does he pray? And again, I think this is essential. If we're going to follow Jesus Christ in praying, if you're going to imitate him, if he's going to disciple you in prayer, then it's not just how he went about prayer that's important. It's the why. Because if you don't understand the why, and if you can't imitate the why, if his reasons for prayer are so different 
than our reasons for prayer, then in that sense, you can't really be an imitator of him. You could be a pupil doing what he says, but you couldn't really imitate him because you'd have two fundamentally, fundamentally different reasons for prayer. When you look at the life of Christ, we want to ask ourselves, why does he seek the Father's face so often? Why does he rise long before the sun? Why does he stay up late at night? Why does he so often get alone in the Gospels to meet with the Father and to pour his heart out and to hold communion with the Father? What, what are his reasons for prayer? And are they reasons that fit your life? And they are. There are, of course, some exceptions. Our prayers include something Christ's never included, and that is that the confession of sin. And so we don't see that in Christ, but what we do see in Jesus is imitatable, if we understand it correctly. The why. I must imitate Christ to pray in a Christian way. It's not just being prayerful. It's not just being diligent and praying a lot or praying the Bible phrases. It's following a person. But following the person will include why. Why did he pray? Otherwise, we're just kind of mimicking the exteriors and the heart would be totally different. Well, understanding the why is so helpful. And in this little book that I mentioned, Glimpses of the Inner Life of Our Lord, William Blakey, a Scottish pastor and professor and theologian in the uh, latter half of the 19th century, so like 1850s to you know, 1890s, around the time of Spurgeon, he's in Scotland and he wrote this little book on the life of Christ and he gives us a list of things that um, motivated Christ to pray. And I think his list is really helpful. So I don't want to repeat his chapter, but I do want to use his list because it's so simple. So let me give you three, four, hold on. Let me count how many I got. Four, four things. All right, number one. Jesus prayed so as to be an example to every one of his followers so that we could imitate him. A simple test for us in really in any area of the Christian life, I think is this. When you come to a place in the Christian life to some task, and you know, it's it's a kind it's the kind of task that's common to every Christian. So some area of obedience. When you come to that area of obedience or that kind of task, and you're not sure exactly how you should do it, do you find yourself going immediately? to the Gospels, to read through them, to see the pattern of Jesus? Does that shed any light on it? Before even perhaps you go to the epistles or to the Old Testament, and certainly before you go grab a book that says Jesus's way of doing such and such. It is so easy. In my life, I find it to be a, a constant temptation, one that I give into, I think, too much. That when I want to consider how to follow Christ in a certain area, there will be a good book written by somebody on how to follow Christ in this area. And I just go grab their book because they already did all the work. But 
I have also found that while that is easier, it tends to cheapen the answers that I find. If I go to the Gospels first, good books are, are fine. They just have to come in the right order. If I go to the Gospels first with the question of prayer, how did he pray? And I read through the Gospels and I make a list in a notebook of every occasion that the Gospel writers mentioned him praying and every passage in which he teaches about prayer. And that's my starting place. And of course, you can add from other portions of the Bible and from good books, which aren't on the same level as the Bible, but they may be helpful for us. Is that where we start? I would suggest this week that before we come back next Wednesday and look at this theme again, you might want to read through the Gospel of Luke with a notebook. And just, if you have time, to work through and note every place that Jesus prayed and every place that he gave a parable or instruction on prayer. And then you can use that whenever you have time in your, you know, Bible readings, whenever you come to a gap, you can use that to go back to and really to wrestle with the Lord and ask him, what does this mean? Why did you do this? If Christ prayed as an example, which Blakey says he did, and I think we would clearly agree, then following his example in praying as a Christian isn't optional. But for that to be practical, you will have to wrestle with the issue of doubt. You may feel that other people can be taught to pray like Christ prayed, and other Christians could imitate Christ in his prayer life, but not you. You have to trust that the Lord Jesus has given you everything you need to be discipled by him in prayer, that he knows how to teach the slowest students you know, the most confused Christians who really want to be taught by him how to pray. Every example that you need is in the scripture. Every instruction and explanation you need is in the scripture. Every encouragement or warning that you need to imitate Jesus Christ in prayer is in the scriptures, not just in the gospels, throughout the whole Bible. I do want to read some questions that Blakey pressed his church members with. And this is in, like I said, the mid-1800s. This is what he says. Oh, prayerless man, speaking to the man sitting on the pew. On what ground do you claim to belong to Christ? You say, perhaps, I'm not quite prayerless. You know, I do pray. I say a few sentences of prayer before I go to bed and again when I wake in the morning. And Blakey asks, but is that really following the example of Jesus? Have you lived, had you lived at the same time that Christ lived, would your pattern of hurrying over a few solemn sentences in prayer have been a real imitation of Jesus's prayerfulness? 
Could anyone who had never actually met the master at prayer have formed any true conception of his prayers from those of you, his disciple? Now, he notes that in this chapter that someone might say, well, I, I, I labor to do that, but I feel that it's such a poor copy of Christ. So it, I don't even think I could call it an imitation. And he says this. A copy may be a poor and faulty piece of work, but still it is, in some sense, a copy. So the life of a Christian may be but a poor, blurred, pitiful copy of the life of Christ, but still it is a copy. And he uses the illustration there of children learning to write, you know, when they first go to, to you know, we would say kindergarten. Do you remember kindergarten? Do you remember the paper you used and the crowns, you know, the like the jumbo crowns and because your little fingers weren't really good at handling the little stuff. And so I remember the paper was that kind of grayish paper. I don't even know if this exists anymore, but, you know, there might be a law against this paper now. I don't know, but it was kind of gray paper and the lines were so big. And so on the wall were a bunch of examples of you know, proper, proper letters, okay? So the G starts here, you go here, and, and even, you know, on those pictures of the letters, it would even show you where to start and what direction to go. And, and if you taught your children how to write and you used some textbook like that or you wrote out the pattern, maybe they traced your letter at first and then you gave them a piece of paper and say, okay, now try to do what I did, but do it on your own. And you look at their letter, and you can tell by the way they did it, they tried so hard to match how you wrote the letters. You know, their little lines are so labored, and they're certainly not a perfect replica, but it is a copy. So when we talk about imitating Christ in prayer, do not, be, do not become discouraged at the beginning of, the, of that topic by saying, but I, I don't think I could ever Look at my prayer life and say, I'm imitating Christ. But you can. It will not be a perfect copy, but it can be a real copy. Christ prayed as an example, but that's not all. If that was all, then really it's not a very practical example for us because there's more. Two, number two, Christ prayed because he was perfectly aware of his need and perfectly dependent on the Heavenly Father for all that he needed. So think of it. If Jesus Christ went through the motions of praying every morning or evening, or, you know, as they gather together, special times of prayer, if he only prayed to show you, to give you a pattern, like this is how you're supposed to pray, would it be a real Example for you. Well, in a sense, no, because he was just going through the motions. It was just like an act. And you are not just going through the motions. It's sometimes it's hard. And like the Psalms, sometimes you pour out your heart and you don't even know what to say. And sometimes you pour out complaints to God and say, God, look at this. You know, what do you have to say about this? And there's confusion, there's sorrow, there's joy and triumph. You know, there's 
pleading for others. There's so many elements in prayer. And if Jesus was just putting on a show so that you would know how to do it, then it's not really, then you don't really follow that example. That's not yours. Christ knew better than you know that he was needy. We know we're needy, but you don't know, you are not aware of your need as much as Christ was aware of his need. Now, when we think of God becoming one of us, uniting his full, the fullness of his deity in the person of his son with a true human body and soul. When we think of a man who is also true God, we probably wouldn't, if we were to ask to write a chapter describing his human life, needy is probably not one of your first words. But he was needy because he was truly human. If you think of neediness as only connected to sinfulness, then you're mistaken. I had a, a, a gentleman who I had befriended, um, and he was part of a Bible study down in South Mississippi many years ago, 30 years ago. And um, he came to this study, and he had, he had come out of a homosexual lifestyle. And he told me, he said, well, in my Episcopalian church, my priest told me that God made me homosexual so that I would realize how much I need him. And I said to him, well, we do need a savior because of our sin, but you need God even if you were perfect. Adam needed God before he sinned. Jesus of Nazareth needed God. He was continually depending on God, though he never sinned. Neediness is fundamentally rooted in the fact that you are a created being. Every created thing is depending on the creator in some way for its life. So when Jesus lives the 33 years on earth, he is perfectly aware that as a man, as a true human, he must go to the father to receive all that he needs that day to do all the father's will. And that that would be given to him through the work of the spirit. He is God. But remember, Philippians 2 speaks of the fact that Jesus, though God does not grasp that right to hold on to that glory. But in coming to do the work of redeeming us, he takes on humanity. He takes the form of a servant and he empties himself. He doesn't empty himself of his godness. He's not a little less God now that he's walking the earth than he was in eternity past. But he has laid aside the constant use of his attributes. Or, as one theologian put it, there was no direct and immediate communication between his necessity as a man and his all-sufficiency as God he became a true man and assumed all the real properties of humanity. Let me put that in our language. 
Though he was fully God, in order to do the work of the Messiah, in order to obey as your representative, as a human, and not as God, this sinless man, instead of using his deity to just breeze through life, lived obediently using the same things you would have to use. The scriptures, dependence upon God, prayer, walking in the spirit. It it is as a man that he fully obeyed the law. And therefore, he can offer that to us as our representative. He is the final Adam. He is the man. He is God and man, but in the outworking of our salvation, he chooses to live with the neediness of a human. Charles Bridges, in his uh, commentary on Psalm 119, I was reading it for my own quiet time this week. He said, I'm, I want to paraphrase a portion. He said this, the Christian life is a life of continual need and continual Coming to God in prayer and continually being supplied by God and continually living on God's provision and continually desiring more. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand Bridges' last statement, continually desiring more. It's not because God gives in such a stingy manner that you barely get enough for this moment. So you each moment you're like, well, God, that just covered, that just covered, you know, the morning. I, I'm, I'm needy again. But I think the picture is that that wonderful dynamic of God's fullness and our need, and we come and he gives and we come and he gives and we live on that and we are satisfied. But his gifts, his giving is so good. We can't help but want more. We have all we need. We long for more. So Jesus would have, as a man, gone to the Father in prayer because there were physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual needs he had as a man. And do you see what good news that is for you, Christian? Because you can go to God because you're needy. So you can imitate the Lord Jesus in that. If you're going to go to God like the Pharisee, because you feel already quite satisfied with your spiritual strength, then you are not following Jesus Christ. You're on another track and your praying is not Christian. Look at the third reason. Jesus desired fellowship with the Father. Clearly, when we read the many examples, Christ talks about the unbroken fellowship he has with the Father. I always do what the Father, what pleases the Father, he said in the Gospel of John. And he said, that means I always have the Father with me. There is an unbroken um, channel of friendship between the Son and the Father that is perfect. We know something of that as Christians, as we walk with God in humility and obedience and dependence and love. There are times where we are aware of such 
an, a wide open, uninhibited, you know, kind of thoroughfare between our soul and our God, where there is, you know, what Owen called communion with God, where God is giving and we are receiving and we are returning. That intimacy, that friendship or fellowship that he delighted in surely was a part of why he prayed. Blakey does mention the fact that every one of us, every human, we do crave the nearness of the people we love. We want to be with them. We don't want to be with everybody. But we want to be with the people we love. And not only that, there is a desire at times to be able to unburden ourselves, especially if you're adult. And you have to adult, you know, adulting, the new verb. And, you know, who wants to be an adult? I mean, there are a lot of heavy-hearted things that an adult has to carry that you didn't carry when you were younger. And it is good to have friends that you can just unburden your heart to, and they understand, you know. Who could Christ unburden his heart to? Could he tell his earthly family all that weighed his heart down when he saw the sin in Nazareth or Jerusalem at the temple? Could he explain to them the joys he was experiencing when he would read the messianic passages and he understood that he is the Messiah? And he reads all that will be accomplished through his life and death and resurrection and rule. That everything will be put right. Who in his family could have fully sympathized with any of the heart of Jesus? Most of his family did not believe his claims to be the Messiah until after his resurrection. His brothers and sisters did not. Could he go to church? And say to his local synagogue pastor, all that was on his heart. The church leaders, within a few years, are the ones that are leading the people to put him to death. Could he go to his 12 disciples and say to his closest companions that he's poured himself into for three years? Could he unburden his heart to them and find in them a group of people that perfectly understand and sympathized? No. You remember when he requests that Peter, James, and John go with him into Gethsemane? As he is there crying out to the Father before the arrest and then the next morning the crucifixion. And they just, they go to sleep. And he comes back to them multiple times and says, can you not pray with me for an hour? I mean, there is a picture of the humanity of Christ longing for the friendship of these men that he loves and has rescued. But they have really no concept. But he could go to the father and surely did over and over and unburdened his heart. Read Psalm 22, Christ's conversations with the father on the cross. Read Isaiah 49, Christ unburdening his heart to the father when in the middle of his public ministry, it looks like everyone is just turning away and it's all for nothing. 
Read Psalm 2, where you get to hear Christ's statements of the communication between him and the Father about this world that is raging against his rights. Christian, it is a hard lesson to learn that no human on earth ultimately knows you, sympathizes, understands. There are people that know us pretty well, and especially there are Christians, as we you know, have close friendships, that we can unburden our hearts to. But no matter how godly they are, no matter how close your friendship, whether they are your spouse or your parent or your brother and sister or your best friend or church pastors, there is no one that fully understands any of us. And that longing that you have in your heart will never be satisfied by a person. But you can go to God. And like the Psalms, you can pour out your soul to God, your deepest desires and confusions and sorrows, and He understands it perfectly. It is such great news that Jesus Christ didn't just pray as an example or didn't just pray because he was needy, but he prayed because of his craving for fellowship with the Father to be able to lay his heart before one person that would understand. And you can follow Christ in that kind of praying. Fourth, Jesus prayed also because he desired to plead the cause of other people before the throne of grace or intercessory prayer, to pray for someone other than yourself. And we are going to talk about that in the next couple of weeks, so I don't want us to spend much time on it tonight. But just think of it in this way. Are there not times as you pray, and maybe you have the church list there. I hope you have the church list and other people that you scribble on the list that you want to pray for. But as you're studying your Bible, you know, you're alone in your quiet time and you're talking with God about what you're learning. Doesn't one prayer tend to lead to the next, especially as the Lord is teaching you? And it's like, you know, he just is filling up your cup and you begin to think of others and you think, God, but what about so-and-so and so-and-so and and you pray for them? God, help them to learn this or God, help them in this way. And one, you know, face after the next comes to your mind as you're praying. And there are times where it is hard work and there are other times where it's like God lets you be aware of the fact that you have freedom to ask anything that's according to his will for these people. That it's, it, there's such a happy freedom to lay them before God with the confidence that he listens. Prayer widening out from just you, your needs, your longings, your love for God widening out and 
grabbing hold of so many others and bringing them to the throne in prayer. Christian, can you not see the good news in that, that Jesus Christ did not just pray for himself, but prayed for others, and he can teach you how to pray for others. You can follow him in that. None of those three, four categories, well, the three, we're not praying as an example necessarily. None of those are ways that you couldn't follow him. Let me give you one last application. I have found in my own experience that when I am a mem- when I have in my life I have been a member of good churches and not so good churches. Even the not so good churches, I mean there are real believers there, you know that you can find and that they encourage you. But when I have been a part of a really good church, a healthy church, I have felt the temptation to let the benefits I'm getting from gathering with the church, the teachings, the prayer meetings, those begin to quietly substitute for my own study of the scripture and my own prayer closet. When I have been in very unhealthy churches, And Sunday mornings were not a help to my soul at all. In fact, it was the opposite. You know, you would go and the music and the sermon and the the talk before and after the sermon was such, was so far from what it could be that you felt like you were two steps backward as a Christian after having gone to the church. But I found that when I was in that kind of situation, I felt desperate. The church wasn't being much of a help. And so my own personal study of the Bible and my own personal prayer times became much more significant. I was more careful. It shouldn't be that way. If the Lord is kind to us here as a group, is kind to us on Sundays, then don't use that as a substitute, but rather as a motivation, a reason. God, if you would be kind to us as a group, will you not be kind to me as an individual? If you give to us when we gather together, would you not give to me when I'm by myself on my knees reading my Bible, you know, Monday morning? So let that stir you with the thought, well, how much can an individual receive? And study the scripture and make great use of your personal prayer closet. Don't let the kindness of the Lord to us as a group become a reason in the hand of an enemy, an argument for neglecting personal study of the scripture and personal prayer. Well, next Wednesday, we'll look at how he prayed and to see if we can follow him there. These are the why. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you give us. We pray that these simple things that we really, we are all aware of already, but that they would be things that would follow us through the week. The why 
of our Lord's prayer life. That it would be our why. And that you would teach us, starting tonight, how to set our hearts toward you. To continually come and receive and desire more. Help us to understand the joy that he had in communion with you in prayer. Teach us. We ask it in his name. Amen.